Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. Times of increased pressure, anxiety, or uncertainty, they cause us to hunt for narratives in our life. Maybe you're in a season where um, you've had financial difficulty. Maybe there's been health challenges in this season. Maybe there's been a loss of a marriage. Maybe there's been a loss of a job. Perhaps you're, you're fighting against cycles in your life that you wish would end. Maybe you're in between houses Whatever the transition, whatever causes increased pressure in our life, we start to hunt for storylines to make sense of the pressure. Because the pressure is something that we wish we could make sense of. And here's what I found. Sometimes the, 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 the desire for a narrative, the desire for some kind of centralized theme that's carrying us through that season is so great that we'll believe a wrong story about our life. Sometimes we'll, we'll adopt like a, a narrative about our life or what's happening in our life that has fallacy in it. But we're so desperate for a why in the times of great pressure that we'll believe anything. But if I was to, if I was to, to summarize what I feel like happens to these seasons of pressure in our life, it's this, it's this next principle. Here's what I think we do with these stories. Is I think we oversimplify the story in our life and God's part in it. So we often make what's happening in our life about one thing. We make it about one idea or one theme. When really God's doing multiple things. Say multiple things. He's doing multiple things at once. And we're in a season right now where we're believing for a building. And it would be easy to make every prayer meeting, every, every time I read the word, every, every um, time I'm um, coming to the Lord in my own devotional time, about the circumstances on the surface. When the Lord's always doing multiple things. And oftentimes the hardest thing about any season is actually not getting the circumstances right, but it's all the questions I'm asking God beneath the circumstances. And most of those questions begin with the word why. Why is it like this? Why aren't you doing something about this, God? Why am I back here again? Why, when I asked you, did you not do it last time? So there's, there's something happening beneath the circumstances that I'm praying about. And oftentimes seasons of uncertainty and pain and transition and pressure are actually about God addressing those things even before he's addressing the surface level things. So let me say it like this. If we ramp church, if we come out of the, out of the other side of this season without a building, but we're more loving and faithful and kind... We, we have come out with the promises of God and we've come out in a better place than if we had a building, but we're no different on the inside. We're just, we're, we're just as faithless in our journey with God. We're just as wavering because God knows that if he can develop eternal treasure in our heart, 
then it doesn't matter what happens on the surface. There's a depth of our knowledge of him and a depth in our, our depth in our walk with God that can stand strong regardless of the circumstances. So here's what I like to think of. Anytime we go through a circumstance, what's ultimately being challenged is my current revelation of who God is and what he wants to do through me. So the reason why I'm shaken in a particular season is because my current revelation of who God is is not strong enough to get me through the season that I'm in. So the circumstances are putting pressure on my current revelation of God. Which is the reason why God's allowing the circumstances to happen in my life. Because there's always more of God to be known. But right now, because I haven't had the pressure to reveal how little I know about God, I'm just satisfied with the bit that I have of him. Here's what I've learned about us. This, isn't, um, this is not too appealing. Maybe I'll just talk about myself. Sometimes I'm lazy. And I learn on a need-to-know basis. I like to think, well, there's just knowledge to be known out there, so I'm going to go after it. But the truth is, I don't start hunting things out until I need to know it. And the same is true of God. We see this in Israel's history. When things were going well, they start to get complacent. They start to get apathetic. When things get rough, what do they do? They cry out to God. There's something about need that puts a demand on my current revelation and my idea of God. And that positions me to hunger for more of Him. That more of Him then increases my capacity to know Him. And that increased capacity then positions me to be used in a greater way by Him. Which sets me up for the next season of greater fruitfulness. And this is the process that God has us on. And if we're oversimplifying our story, we're missing what God is actually up to. One example is maybe, maybe we oversimplify our story like this. I've, I've, uh, the reason I'm going through hard times is because I've done something wrong. God's, God's correcting me. He's chastising me. He's disciplining me through these situations. I'm not saying that never happens, but sometimes we get stuck in that idea. And this is the reality of it. If you are living in Christ, then this is not your past coming back to haunt you. Because if you're living in Christ, the old things have been passed away. Behold, all things have been made new. You're a new creature in him. Ephesians says you're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. It's not based on my behavior. It's based on where do I belong. And I belong inside of Christ. Some of us, we think, well, the whole world is against us. I've always had struggles like this. I'll always have struggles like this. This is just who I am. This is the cycle I'm on. Some of us think we romanticize the past. I've always, I had it great back then, but I'll never have it like that again. We oversimplify our story. The, the amazing thing about this is we have examples all through Scripture of people who have gone through seasons of testing and pressure and trial. And here's what I've discovered. We unpacked this last week is oftentimes we create either or either or narratives about our story. And last week we looked at the story of, go back to that next slide, please. Uh, we, we looked at, last week we looked at the story of Israel, and Israel was in the wilderness. They were in between the place that, that, that they were, which was in slavery to Egypt, and, in, and the promised land that God promised them. And in that in-between period, they were hungering and thirsting in the wilderness. They needed water. They were out in the middle of the desert, and they were asking the Lord, Lord, where's the water? You brought us out here in the middle of the, of, of the desert. Are you just going to let us die? And if I was with the Israelites, 
I would have cre- I would have had two conclusions from that. Now we can go to that next slide. Thank you, Hazel. This is what I would have thought. Either God isn't with us because we don't have water, or God is with us and he wants us to suffer. These are the ways we oversimplify our story. Either God's with me and he wants me to suffer, or God isn't with me because I don't have water. These, these are either-or narratives. This is what I've discovered about either-or narratives. It's this reality. This next slide. Either-or narratives can blind us to God, what he's like, what he's saying, and what he's doing. Because we've already made up our mind about the conclusion on what God is doing and what he's not doing in this situation. And the, the, the answer to an either-or narrative is, is having a both-and perspective. This is what Israel should have been thinking in the wilderness. Since God is both with us and we don't have water, what's he going to do next? What's he going to Now, we know the end of the story. God created a miracle in the wilderness and brought water out of a rock. But if Israel would have thought that way when they were wondering, wanting water, if they would have had a both-and perspective, they would have had hope for a miracle in the middle of a circumstance that doesn't look like God's with them. And here's what I've realized about both-and narratives. Both-and narratives can reveal God who never leaves us alone and who's authoring our story. We're then empowered to join his work. So if we have a, a perspective that's open enough to realize the circumstances in my life don't look like God's with me, but I know God never leaves me. Now, what am I, what, what's, in, what's happening with my life? I'm positioned for a miracle. I'm positioned for him to move. I'm positioned for him to speak. I have a unique, um, I have a unique um, posture now to see him move in my life. So the, bur- the first both and truth that we talked about last week was when God speaks, it's both clear and hazy. When God speaks, it's both clear and hazy. And if you want to see that, unpa- if you want to listen to that unpacked, go back and listen to last week's message. But the second essential both and truth in testing times, we're going to discover in Joshua chapter 1. So turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. That's our teaching text for today. We're going to w- read verses 1 through 9. Joshua chapter number one. This is continuing with the story of Israel in the wilderness, and here's what it says. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land I am giving the Israelites. I've given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness in Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites, and west to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you will distribute the land I swore for you. Can you go back? Be strong and courageous, now continue, for you will distribute the land I swore to their ancestors to give them as an inheritance. Above all, be strong and very courageous to observe carefully the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left so that you will have success wherever you go. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You're to meditate on it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written in it. For then you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Haven't I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
And this is the second both and narrative that's essential for you to know in testing seasons. It's this next slide. Your future is both up to God and up to you. Your future is both up to God and up to you. And this is what we see played out in Joshua chapter 1. Israel's coming through the, the, the wilderness. They're coming out of slavery. All of this is a picture to your, own, to your own personal life with God. They're coming out of slavery to their enemies. They're in a transition period where God is stripping away their slavery mentality. And then in them, he is rebuilding what it looks like to be devoted to him. And then he's sending them into their promise. So this is the same process that happens in our life. So in Joshua chapter 1, we see unfolding that Israel's future was both up to God and it was up to them. And the first, the first reason that's true is this. Because God sets your borders, but your feet walk the land. God sets your borders, but your feet walk the land. It's funny how we turn what God did for Israel in Joshua chapter 1 into a principle that applies to anything that I desire or want in life. Have you ever been to those prayer meetings where people are like, you know what, you want a new car? Well, wherever the sole of your feet tread, that will God give to you. Just go walk around the car dealership, right? You want that new house, you want that new neighborhood, just go walk around that neighborhood, God's gonna give you that land. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that if that's what God's saying to you. But that's only half of the principle from Joshua chapter one. The other half is that God was very specific about the boundaries of their land. In other words, they just couldn't walk on any old land and claim that as theirs. God said, here's the boundaries of your land, and anywhere you walk in there, I'll give you. Why? Because their future was both up to God and it was up to them. He set the limits or the boundaries of their promise, and it was their responsibility to walk on it. It's amazing because we, we believe some funny things sometimes. Like, well, if it's God's will, he's going to make it happen. Well, where did you believe? Where did you get that from? I, I don't see that storyline in Scripture. If it's God's will, he's going to partner with a person to make it happen. That's how it happens. Why? Because your future is up to God and it's up to you. He sets the boundaries of your success, but you have to go walk in your success. You have to go walk in your land. See, what, sometimes we're offended by that. We want to use, use this idea of my feet treading wherever I want as, a, as a, an opportunity for God to give me whatever I want because we don't like the idea of God giving me boundaries. Can I just speak for myself? We don't like boundaries. I don't like somebody telling me what to do. I don't want someone to tell me I can't have that. Right? We don't like that. We don't like limitations, and we actually, sometimes we think that God's priority towards us is to give us a limitless life. We think that God has a responsibility, maybe even an obligation, that when I give my life to him, he just takes the limits off. Like, I can just be whatever I want to be. Like, here I come, world. I've got God on my side. I don't know where we get this idea, but it isn't from Scripture because God's into limits. Like, he creates limits. Um, I think sometimes we're offended by this because really our society is built around this idea that, that a limitless life equals a happy life. So any, can, can I just get a little, can I get, just give a little political lecture for just a minute? Is that okay? Is it okay to talk about politics in church? Um, 
Any classical liberal government is based on the primary belief that the doorway to ultimate happiness is liberty. When you look back at the, hundred, at the, last, at the last 100 years, 300 years really, then we see you're either fascist or you're communist or you're classical liberal. Those are, those are our options. And the, the belief system that classical, classical liberal governments are based on is anything that restricts us is, is, is leading me away from happiness. And so then our entire system of government is based around protecting liberties. Of course, if you take that to the end, it, it, it becomes a problem when to protect my liberties or to protect my liberties then infringes on someone else's rights. So this is a flaw kind of in classical liberal governments, but that's, that's a talk for a different, a different day. But sometimes we have brought that into our faith and we start to believe that our happiness is linked to living a limitless life when God never made that claim. God is into limits. God created sleep, which I'm still kind of annoyed about, to limit my productivity. He created marriage, which limits my sexuality. He created Sabbath, which limits my self-sufficiency. He created varied gifts and talents, which limits my usefulness. God's into limits. We could go on and on and on. Believing I have no limits is not faith. It is a modern, progressive, humanistic idea. Faith, here's, here's what faith is. Faith isn't believing I have no limits. Faith is believing God will fulfill his promises despite my limits. See, some of you, you've already disqualified yourself for what God can do through your life because you say, well, I don't have fill in the blank. I've never, well, I don't know so-and-so. Well, but you're a person of faith, aren't you? Well, yeah, well, then that's what you need. Because faith believes that in spite of my limits, God's going to fulfill what he said he's going to do. I know you don't have enough experience, neither did Gideon. I know you don't have your family's support, neither did Joseph. I know you don't have the respect of the established church, neither did Paul. I know you're not old enough, neither was Timothy. I know you don't have the right education, neither did Peter. See, faith is believing that God isn't constrained by my limitations. It's believing that God will do what he said he will do regardless of my limitations. See, we can't use faith as some kind of self-help-like instrument. Like, I'm going to fulfill my limitless life and I'm going to use faith to do that. No, no, no. God has a different storyline for our life. And, and it is this. Our happiness and our well-being is actually connected to embracing our limitations and realizing that we serve a God who transcends them. Who's able to do what I'm unable to do. That is where our happiness leads to. This sort of limitation type thinking, I call these if-only narratives. If only I wasn't shy, God could use me more. If only I didn't have these health issues, I could be more consistent. If only my family member hadn't gotten ill, I could give myself to the ministry. If only I had a better ed education. If only I hadn't lost my job. If only I wasn't single. If only I wasn't married. All right, let's get real in this house. If only I'd have waited to have kids. If only I had a mentor. If only, if only, if only, if only. What's your if only? What's your if only? It's the thing when somebody preaches an inspiring message or you read about great things that are happening or you, you feel the Lord calling you into something new and it's the first thing that comes to your mind, well, if only. 
So you're saying God's limited by your limitation. So you're saying that that thing you don't have, God also doesn't have. The essence of faith is not believing I don't have limits. The essence of faith is believing I serve a limitless God. So the cure for your if-only narrative is an even here, even now, even me, even us faith. You've got to replace that if-only narrative with an even me. I, I believe God can do it. Even me. Even us. Even here. Even now. Why? Why is that important? Because God sets your borders, but your feet walk the land. And if you view every limitation in your life as a disqualification to walk into what God has for you, you will never believe the things that God tells you. You'll never obtain your future version that God's calling you into because you're limiting him based on you. But then on the, the flip side of that is you're going to believe for things he never wants to give you because you're living outside the boundaries that he has for your life. Because your future is both up to God and it's up to you. And the first way is because God set your borders, but your feet walk the land. The second, the second reason is this. Because God gives multi-generational promises, but your individual life carries them forward. God gives multi-generational promises, but your individual life carries them forward. You know one of my favorite things about Joshua chapter 1? Where God says to Joshua, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You know one of my favorite ways that God describes himself in Scripture? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God is not trying to do everything he wants to do in the world through your life and your life only. But the things we're stewarding are bigger than us. See, this, this also taps into that cultural narrative, that that. That, that thing around us that's saying any sort of limitation or expectation or any context that you have to live up to is a limitation. Because even heritage is something that we're rejecting in this generation. Because, oh, I, I, can't live, I can't live connected to something beyond me. That's a limitation on me. That's viewed as something that's taking me away from, which is why we're rejecting family, community, faith, national heritage, any sort of, all, all these things. What are, because these are things that are trying to constrain us and our philosophy on life is anything that's trying to constrain me is taking me away from happiness. That's not the biblical story. The biblical story is that God gives multi-generational promises and my individual life is called to carry that forward. I'm, I'm, God, God didn't start this with Joshua. Joshua is just carrying on the promise from Moses. But God didn't start with Moses because Moses is just carrying on the promise from Joseph. And God just didn't start with Joseph because Joseph was carrying on the promise from Jacob. And Jacob was just carrying on the promise from Isaac. And Isaac was just carrying on the promise from Abraham. Do you see, you see, you see what's happening here? And each one of them had the responsibility to carry the ball just a bit further down, down the field. Just a bit further down the field. Because God gives multi-generational promises, but your individual life carries it forward. Something happens in your life when you stop judging your fruitfulness based on what you can measure... And you start judging it based on how the next generation is impacted by what you've done. Something shifts when you stop just looking at what you've produced and you start looking at how am I connected to the generations around me? What am I stewarding that's bigger than me? Or is the only way I'm reviewing my life based on what, what I'm doing, based on what I can count out of my life? 
I love this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. Thank you, Abraham. You just set me free. Because that's how I feel half the time. By faith, Abraham stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise. Living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, who were co-heirs of the same promise. For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham was living in a tent, but he was dreaming about a city. He was living in the tent in the promised land. You see, some of us refuse to even go in the promised land until God builds us a house. Like, all right, Lord, I'm sitting out here. God apparently doesn't want me to go over there. You ain't built me nothing. I mean, it's his will. It's his bill. But Abraham said, if God's called me there, he hasn't built me a house, all right, I'll pitch a tent. I'll pitch a tent. Uh, you know what I love about Hebrews 11? It says that he lived as a foreigner. Wait a second, he was a foreigner. That wasn't his land. Not to Abraham. That was his promise. You're never a foreigner in your own promise. Come on. You may not have a house there yet, but if God's called you there, you, you may live like a foreigner there, but you're not a foreigner. That place belongs to you because God has called it yours. And there needs to be something about our faith. Something, there needs to be a tenacity in our faith that isn't waiting around for things to be perfect before I step into it. Why? Because I'm hosting a multi-generational promise. So I will not see the fulfillment of everything I'm believing for. If I am, I'm not stewarding multi-generational promises. This is where we are at Ramp Church. We're believing for an army of young people that's going to come in this nation, that's going to come with a loud shout, that's going to cause the enemy to flee from this land and others. That's one of the words that we're standing on in this place. Come on, that is worth giving a praise over to the Lord. You go, well, that sounds kind of foolish. You guys don't even have a building. You're believing for an army? Don't judge my promise by my tent. Don't you judge my promise by my tent. Now, the other side of this is you don't need to, you don't need to live, get so comfortable in the tent, you, you forget about the promises. You're going to home sense and getting decorating items and putting a lamp in the corner and hang, figuring out how to hang pictures on the walls of the tent. And you forget about this is a place that God wants to build a city in. No, 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 no. Abraham lived in the tent, but he was, he was living in cities at the same time. Come on. His body was in a tent, but his spirit was in a city. And you've got to understand there are times in your life where you steward temporary things, but you're contending for permanent promises. You may be using temporary tools, but your life is contending for permanent promises. And just as, just as you can't stay outside of the promised land waiting for God to do it all so you just walk into the finished product, 
You can't move into the, into the promised land living with temporary things and giving up there. It takes great strength of soul. It takes great courage to be in a place where things around you look like it'll never happen, but in my heart, I know it's gonna happen. Come on, some people, some people think that people of faith, that they need faith as kind of a crutch. I'm like, have you, ever, have you ever met someone who really believes for stuff? It's like the strongest people I know. I think about my mom. Raising single kids. Raising kids as a single parent. Just trying to make ends meet. Being, uh, being raised by an abusive father. I think about her when I look to her and she's the strongest person I know as a kid. What is she, that, and what, what led me to the Lord? Her prayers, her faith. That, 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 that wasn't a crutch for her. Do you know how much it took for her to continue to believe in God in spite of every circumstance she was pushing against? It takes courage to be living in a tent in the promised land, continuing to dream about cities. People, that is people of faith. And this is what I want to tell you. If you don't have a house yet, pitch a tent in your promise. Come on, pitch a tent in your promise. Are you stewarding multi-generational promises? Are you stewarding things bigger than yourself? Hey, I mean, I may finish this whole ramp, this whole ramp thing in Manchester, hand this over to the next generation, and, and we have a, a tent and a foundation built. There's not a city yet. But, but in my lifetime, I've brought it further. I've brought it further. And I'm going to hand it over to the next generation, and they're going to take it, they're going to, take it to a city. <laughs> they're going to build a city in this place. Why? Because I'm stewarding something bigger than me. Your future is both up to God and up to you. Because God gives multi-generational promises, but your individual life carries it forward. Number three, your future is both up to God and up to you because God gives divine grace, but you give hard work. Say hard work. I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 15. This is a powerful chapter, but we're just going to read one verse. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. This is Paul speaking, and this is what he says um, about his calling, his personal calling. By the grace of God, I am what I am. He's talking about his apostleship. 1 Corinthians 15, he explains the gospel. Most of the gospel message that we preach today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a beautiful chapter. And Paul is giving his qualifications for why he's qualified to preach the gospel and us to believe him. And he's talking about how he's equal with the other apostles, okay? Paul does not lack in confidence, ladies and gentlemen. He's saying, it's God's grace that's made me this, okay? I didn't choose it. And his grace towards me was not in vain. This is a painful sentence. Because if Paul's designating that God's grace was not in vain towards him, that means God's grace can be vain towards you. Now, God's grace, the original word for that is the Greek word charisma. And it means supernatural empowerment. So it's God's spirit empowering you for service. That means God can give you his spirit. He can empower you for his service but it be given to you in vain. That's scary, isn't it? I mean, maybe it just scares me. But Paul says, how did he make sure that God's supernatural empowerment towards him was not in vain? On the contrary, in other words, it wasn't in vain. I worked harder than any of them. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about the other apostles, like James, John, Peter. 
Like, what? This is in the Bible. Like, God allowed this to be in the Bible. Paul's like, I worked harder than any of those jokers. <laughs> Yet not I, but it was the grace of God that was in me. So Paul's saying, your future is both up to God and you because God gives you his divine grace and you give him your hard work. It's not one or the other. It's not like I just sit back and, well, if God wants it to happen, you know, he's powerful enough. He's strong enough. He's going to do it. But it's also not the other thing. I remember someone telling me with, like, conviction in their eyes, this Bible verse. Reverse quotation marks. Uh, uh, here, reverse commas. Um, God helps them who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to disappoint you. That's not in the Bible. Now, you can see that principle at times. But it is, it's not like, it's not, it's not either God or me. It's both. That's a both and. It takes God's divine grace and your hard work. Do you know that work is not a result of the fall? There's a lot of things that are a result of the fall. But God instituted work before the fall. This is Genesis chapter 2, where God put Adam and Eve in the garden. I'm about to give you a Bible verse. To work it. I don't mean work it. I mean work. What was a result of the fall was fruitless work. Well, as a result of the fall is you will labor in the fields, but all you'll get is thorns. You're going to give yourself to the place of work, but all you're going to get is thorns. But then in the new covenant, there's still hard work, but he's returning us back to Genesis 2 because he's giving us his grace. And what does grace do? It's this next slide. Effective Work is fueled by God's grace. Uh, God's grace makes your work fruitful. God's grace doesn't make your work easy. That's why it's called work. God's grace makes it possible. It means that when you work, you're not working in vain. But God's grace is with you, therefore your work is fruitful. If you've ever tried to do anything significant, you realize how hard it is. If you're trying to raise a child, that's significant, that's hard work. If you're an entrepreneur trying to start a business, that's hard work. If you have cycles, struggles, or addictions in your life, and you're trying to get free, you know that's hard work right? Anything significant is going to be hard work. But what makes it fruitful is God's grace that's touching your hard work. You can think about it like this. I'm, my job is to build sailboats. God's job is to blow the wind. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to wait around for the wind before I build a sailboat. I'm just going to see, keep building sailboats. So you know the harbor of my life is just full of sailboats just sitting there. Just waiting on the wind of God. It's different ideas, different creative thoughts I have. You know what I do in my off time? I just build sailboats. I'm just over in my corner in my house just building sailboats. And I just loose it into the, into the harbor. Because why? Because I know someday the wind of God's going to come. And if I don't have a sail that's ready to catch that wind, 
That's, uh, then, then his grace is in vain. But if I've got a sailboat sitting in the harbor, then his grace comes and that grace is not in vain because it fills a sail of his promise and it carries it in to what I know he has for me. Why? Because God gives divine grace, but I give hard work. The grace of God is not in vain. Your future is both up to God and it's up to you. Band, if you can go ahead and take your places. In closing, the Lord just highlighted Exodus chapter 33 for you. Exodus 33 is in the middle of the wilderness. So we're still in the same story. And Moses is leading Israel. He's their leader. And Israel's doing some dumb stuff, okay? They have terrible attitudes. They're a lot like me. They have terrible attitudes. And they're like, they're not doing the things that God asked them to do. And it's just like, and Moses, Moses is like talking to God about what to do. And God's like done. He's like fed up. He's like, Moses, let's just be done with this. I'll just start over with you. He's like, we'll just let them do whatever they want to do. And you can start, you can be my new promised person. And all your kids. And, and, and Moses is like, no, 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 you can't do that. Remember what you've promised over them. And God's like, oh, right, yes. <laughs> yes, their future is both up to me, but it's also up to them. But Moses, and this is the word for you. This is the word for you, no matter what season you're in. Moses in the middle of this wilderness, in the middle of just trying to survive, water, food. Moses has an unusual prayer. He goes up to the mountain of the Lord and he doesn't ask God for answers. He doesn't ask God for provision. He doesn't ask God for food and water. He doesn't ask God to fix Israel. He doesn't ask God to give him a house. He doesn't ask God to give him a new building. What he asked God is he said, God, show me your glory. I want to see your face. You know what's extraordinary about this? If I was in that same situation, you know how I would do, you know how I know what I would do? Because I, I do this now. Maybe you can relate. God, when you get me through this tough time, when you get me through this wilderness, I'm going to spend time with you. But just you, you just get me through this first. God, first things first, you know. And then we'll get to all the spiritual stuff. But my kids are thirsty. My tent is leaking. I'm utterly worn out. Your glory, your glory, your nature, your attributes, your presence, those are luxuries, but I can't afford to focus on those right now because I have more important stuff to worry about. Not Moses. In the middle of the most trying period of his life, his primary prayer was, God, I want to see your face. And it reminds me of 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is so popular. Every citywide prayer meeting, we're going to quote this verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, which is, when my people who are called by my name 
when, when they will humble themselves, when they will seek my face, then I'm going to hear from heaven, I'm going to come heal their land. You know that? You've heard that verse. This is the thing that's always stood out to me about that verse. The people aren't praying for the healing of their land. They're just seeking God's face. And this is what I realized about that verse. If you seek the healing of your land, not only do you not get the healing of your land, but you don't get God. But if you seek God, you get God, and you get a healed land. See, Moses got that. That's why in the middle of the wilderness, he knew all that stuff is going to come. But there's one thing that I've got to have. Water's going to come and it's going to go. I don't know how I'm going to get it. It could come from a rock. It could come because I strike a rock, because I speak from a rock. It could come because it falls from heaven. I don't know. But what I do know is if, that I, if I don't have him, I don't have anything. If I don't have God's glory, I may have my freedom, but I don't have anything. If I don't have God's glory, I may, not have, I may have water, but I, I really don't have anything. I may have food, but I really don't have anything. Because the face in, in the face of God, I find everything I need. Come on, stand on your feet all over this room.